Chapter 34 Work Together One of us will have to be reeled outside, on a rope or cable. Someone will have to hold that rope, and someone else will have to be on the end of that rope. And do what? Pull the time matrix in through the hatch? That will mean losing all our air again. We don't have force fields anymore. Yes, it will be do or die, the visor said. We can use the air hoods for an emergency five minutes. I stared blankly at him. What air hoods? You forget. I control Alaron, and this was his ship. I know all the ship's secrets. There is a small supply of emergency hoods. Alaron kept them for just such an occasion. I thought about that for a few seconds. It made me sick to cooperate with the Yurk. But what other choice did I have? Here are my terms. I will go outside. You hold the rope. The Yurk laughed. And when you reach the time matrix, you'll activate it and disappear, leaving me behind. No, I would not leave Loren. I mean, the humans. Search Alaron's mind. He knows. You'll see it's true. Visser 32 considered for a moment. Yes, it seems you are correct. Alaron decided you had formed some pathetic feelings for this human female. But just in case you decide to betray me anyway, I remind you that I still have my tail. I can finish your human friends slowly as we sink toward that black hole. It took a few minutes to tear enough cable loose from the controls to form a long lifeline. Even though I wouldn't weigh anything, I would still have mass enough to break a two-week line. True to his claim, Visser 32 found four air hoods. They had been stashed in each of the individual quarters. They were simple but effective models. Basically, they were just clear plastic bags that slipped over your head and tied at the neck. There was a small oxygen bottle. Very small. The hoods were rated for five minutes. The mix of oxygen and other gases, as well as subtler ingredients, would keep my body from depressurizing in the vacuum of space. But after five minutes, my air would run out. The oxygen inside my body would expand, bursting every blood vessel, rupturing my eyes. A painful death. I had not explained these details to Loren. I tied the hood in place and helped Loren put hers on. We tied one on the still unconscious Chapman. Then I carefully tied the cable around my tail. Ready? The visor asked me. I'm ready, I said. You just worry about yourself, Yurk. The visor laughed. Alaron is so right about you. You're a moralizing, arrogant, weak-willed little fool. Loren, I said, we're going to open the hatch. Air will rush out, but we'll do it more slowly than before. Still, keep an eye on your fellow human. We don't want him sucked out into space. We don't? Loren asked. I looked at her, puzzled. Sarcasm, she explained. A type of humor. I would have laughed, but I was just too scared. I lifted the hood and filled my lungs with cabin air. 
Then I replaced the hood, turned on the oxygen, and nodded to Visser 32. The hatch began to open. Everything that could have been sucked out into space already had been, so nothing much happened. There was a sort of breeze, then nothing, as the hatch finished opening. But the cold was like a fist. Cold like nothing any planet dweller could imagine. I stood in the doorway and stared out at space. Below me, huge beyond imagining, was the swirl of dust feeding the black hole. At the far edge of the swirl was a star. The star was being drained by the black hole. A huge, long, arced plume of hot gas was being drawn from the star into the black hole. I hoped there had not been planets around that star. I hoped no sentient species had met its fate this way, torn apart by the space-warping might of the black hole. I had a vision of myself, falling away free, falling and falling into the black monster. I shook my head to clear the image. Focus, Alfangor, I muttered to myself. Worry about the black hole if you fail, not till then. I looked back along the axis of the Jahar. Her elongated oval and three rakish engines and wonderfully long shredder spike still looked so potent. The ship spun in space, around and around in a wobbly loop. It's disorienting, even if you've been through all the training for things like that. The swirl of dust and hot gases would be overhead one second, beneath me the next. Stars sped by overhead. I searched back along the ship for the time matrix, but it wasn't there. Had it drifted entirely away? Had the living asteroids taken it? Steadying myself as well as I could, I pushed off into space. I aimed to counter the spin of the ship. The result was that the ship now spun slowly beneath me. And there, rising from the far side of the ship, like a moon coming up over a planet, was the time matrix. I see it, I reported. It's wedged in place by the engine pylons, going after it. If you have never tried to move in zero gravity, you have no idea how utterly impossible it can be. You're floating weightless, with no up or down, nothing to push off against. If the cable were to break, I could float forever, just a few feet away from the ship, and yet never be able to move back across that tiny distance. But I had been well-trained in zero-gravity movement. I yanked lightly on the cable with my tail, drawing myself back toward the ship. I timed the impact carefully, and tapped two hooves on the hull, just enough to change my direction. I floated back toward the engines, back toward the time matrix. It lay there like the egg of some unimaginably huge bird. Ten feet across, it fit neatly into the cradle formed by the engine pylon. I drifted toward it, stretching out hands stiff and numb with cold. I touched it, touched it and stopped my momentum carefully so that I wouldn't bounce off it. My bare, frozen hands touched the hard, smooth surface, and somehow the time matrix seemed to warm me. I felt heat glow up through my stiff fingers and up my awkward arms. Now how do I move you back to the hatch? I wondered. It was far too big to get my arms around. I would have to use the cable to fashion a sling. 
and I had exactly three minutes before the hood ran empty and all of us, the Visser, Loren, Chapman, and I, were done for. I worked quickly, untying the cable from my tail, forming it into two big loops with a cross brace. It wasn't much. It wasn't secure. But it was all I could do. Okay, I said. Pull! The visor pulled, and slowly the time matrix, with me holding onto one of the cable ends, began to move toward the hatch. It's going to work, I told myself. It's going to work. We're going to use the time matrix. The first living creatures to have used the dread machine for thousands and thousands of years. Chapter 35 We snugged the time matrix up against the hatch, with air and time running out. Once more inside the Jahar, I could see the suffering that Loren had endured. The blend of gases from the hoods was adjusted for endolite bodies, not humans. She was in pain from the gradual decompression. She could barely stand. The viscer, though, still stood, or at least floated. Well done, Andalite, he said. Thirty seconds left to activate this thing. Go ahead, Yurk, I sneered. Make your move. I saw the coldness in his eyes, colder even than the freezing cold of space. I knew I had guessed right. He had intended to eliminate me. One slash of his andalite tail to finish me off. But I was prepared, and he knew it. Which of us would win a tail fight in zero gravity? He didn't know, and neither did I, and there was no time left for mistakes. How does one turn this thing on? I wondered, looking at the white globe half crammed into the hatchway. No visible instruments or control panels. Has to be direct mind link using a physical interface. Loren moved her lips as though speaking, but in the vacuum, no sound could be heard. I saw through the plastic hood that her lips had turned blue. Her eyes were fluttering. Touch, I said. The Matrix responds to touch. I think if we touch and form a mental link, we can... The Visser moved, not to attack, but to press his hand against the Time Matrix. He was trying to gain control over it before I could. I pressed my hand against the Matrix and searched desperately in my mind for a link. What happened next is almost impossible to describe, and surely impossible for anyone to understand who has not experienced it himself. As I touched the time matrix and searched for it with my mind, the entire universe simply opened up. Opened up like a piece of fruit that has been exploded into segments. But that's not telling a millionth of it. Everything changed. Everything. The ship around me, the familiar Jahar, was suddenly not a vessel anymore, but an amazing array of fragments, each twisted inside out and outside in. Each piece was connected to every other piece in insane ways that no rational mind could make sense of, and from each piece of the ship there stretched lines that curled and twirled through space, connecting back to the Taxon world, and back to the Star Sword, and back to a thousand other places, all somehow visible to me. I could see every place the ship had been, it was as if each of those places were right here and a billion miles away at once. But all the lines of the ship 
were dim and dull compared to the spectacle of the living bodies around me. I saw the andalite body of Alaron opened up and split apart, transparent, twisted so that every part could be seen from every angle at once. I saw the living, beating hearts. I saw the muscles of the tail. I saw the ways the eyes were attached to the brain, and not just from the outside, but from inside. And to my horror, I saw the yerk slug. It was wrapped around Alaron's brain, sinking into every wrinkle and crevice, sinking deep between the four segments. I could literally see the flow of thoughts and emotions. I saw inside the slug that was Visser 32. I saw the way the yerk mind drew memories from Alaron and sent back orders. I saw and felt the impotent rage of Alaron as he lay helpless in the yerk's grasp. I know how impossible it is to really grasp this, but I saw in and through and around everything at once. I saw timelines stretching back from the yerk and back from Alaron. I saw their pasts, and I saw the horrible moment when those timelines became entwined, becoming one. I could see Alaron's past in flashes of wild action and wild emotion. I saw the terrible moment when Alaron stood and missed Battlefield Slaughter on the Hork-Bajir homeworld. I saw the ground piled high with Hork-Bajir and Endolite dead. And I saw the actual decision, deep in Alaron's despairing brain, the decision to release the forbidden quantum virus. I felt his bitterness when even that evil measure failed, and the Hork-Bajir were lost to the Yerks. I saw the retreat of the shattered, beaten Endolite force. I was almost drowning from this assault of data. It was as if I had been plugged directly into every computer ever built, and all of them were dumping information into my brain. I even saw the timeline of the black hole itself. I saw it form from the explosive moment of the universe's birth, and watched it condense and burn bright as a huge star. I saw it die and collapse, digging a hole in space itself. But then... Admits all the swarm of information, among all the insides and outsides, all the pasts and all the connections, I felt the will of Visser 32. I felt him take hold of the time matrix, and I felt the matrix respond, felt it turn to him. In the Visser's Yerk brain, I saw the image of the Yerk homeworld. He was forming it, clear and detailed. I saw the awful pools where the Yerks were born. I felt the Conjona rays that beat down from the Yurk's own strange sun. He was directing the Time Matrix, aiming it, telling it to take him there, to the Yurk homeworld. No! I focused my will, and in the weird universe I inhabited, I saw my own living brain as it focused, concentrated, bringing more and more mental power to bear. It was insane! I could watch my own brain work. Watch my own brain, watching my own brain, watching my own brain. I had to take control of the time matrix. I had to fight, to resist the visor. I summoned up an image in my head. But it was a confused picture. I saw the part of the Andalite world where I had grown up. The trees, the grass, the sky. But mixed in with that image were others. I saw them float up out of my own brain. I saw them skim by. Three-dimensional pictures, looking so flat and strange in this multi-dimensional universe. I saw my own Andalite world, but mixed in were images of Earth, the pictures I had seen. Somewhere, far off, 
I realized I could see my own body beginning to freeze. Systems were shutting down. I could see inside fingers that were frozen stiff. I could see a tail that hung limp, all tension gone. My hearts were beating sluggishly. I was watching my own body die. I was weakening. The visor, too, was hurt by the cold, but the yerk himself, down inside Alaron's head, was still alert and strong. Slowly, the balance shifted to him. The images were more and more of the yerk homeworld. His images were coming in over mine like a tide. I was losing. I was failing as the cold shut down my body and reached tendrils into my mind. And then, a new mind. Alien, but familiar in a way. I saw the yerk jerk in alarm and surprise. This new force, this new mind was strong. Stronger than even he could have expected. Loren! I saw inside her and through her. I saw her thoughts, and I saw her push back the visor's own image, not defeating him, but keeping him at bay. I realized something else had changed. The black hole was further away now. The Jahar could still be seen, but it too was further away. We were moving. The time matrix had been programmed, and we were moving through time. The last memory I had, as the cold collapsed my consciousness, was of someone vast and incredible a being like nothing I could have imagined. It saw me. It saw us all. And it laughed. Chapter 36 I woke up with that laughter still ringing in my head. I opened my main eyes and found, to my surprise, that I was standing. I opened my stock eyes and looked around in all directions. Trees, grass, a stream running close by, a gentle breeze. Home? Am I home? I stared at a therant tree. The trunk, the branches, the vines. Impossible. It was Halafala, the oldest of the therant trees in the woods near my home. My father had shown me this tree when I was just a very small child. It was my gariba, my guide tree. I ground my hooves into the grass, taking a sample taste. Yes, it was the grass I had grown up on, the grass of home. How did I get here? I wondered aloud. I reached out with both hands and placed them on the smooth bark of the halafala. And I heard the voice of the tree, deep and simple and powerful. It did not speak in words, of course. Only a handful of trees have ever used words. And even then, it could take them hours to say a single word. But Halafala spoke to me, as it usually did, letting me know that it felt my presence. Letting me feel its own strange, slow mind. I'm home, I whispered to Halafala. And then, after all that had happened, I broke down. I sobbed. I cried. I told my guide tree everything in a rush of disjointed emotion. Of course, not even a gariba can understand stories of space travel, of aliens, of war and terrible decisions. But it could hear my shame. It could hear my despair for poor, doomed Arbron. It could hear my cries of pain 
for all I had seen. It heard my fear. The Gariba could not change what had happened, and it could not tell me that I was forgiven or that all would be well now. I knew the ritual of forgiveness. I have made right everything that can be made right. I have learned everything that can be learned. I have sworn not to repeat my error, and now I claim forgiveness. But I had not yet made right everything that could be made right. I had not yet learned to understand my own mistakes. I was not ready to swear I would not repeat those mistakes. Forgiveness for all my terrible failings was still a long way off. But the Gariba, the tree named Halafala, heard me, heard my shame and rage, and being heard, helped. My sobbing quieted. I took my hands away from the tree's smooth bark. I walked slowly away, crunching up the sweet grass of home and trying, with my exhausted mind, to make sense of what had happened. Clearly, I had used the time matrix to carry me through time and space. Without experiencing any passage of time, I was home. But home when? Was this a hundred years ago? A thousand? The Gariba had been alive for seven thousand years. It could be anywhere in that time span. I remembered trying to turn the time matrix to my own visions, and I guess I had succeeded. All these trees, all this lush grass, the kafit bird that fluttered overhead, the little hoobers that jumped on springy tendrils and stared at me from their comically bulging eyes—all this was home, my home. And across that stream and over that next rise, I would see my family home, just ahead. I broke into a run. I leapt the stream like I always did, and suddenly I had to be home. I didn't care what anyone said. I didn't care. I wanted my mother and father. I wanted to lie down in the deep grass of the scoop and find my old toys and be a child again. I ran flat out, and yes, the slopes were so familiar, and yes, every tree was where it should be. I ran to the top of the rise. Ready to look down into our neat oval-shaped family scoop, and I stopped. There it was, the scoop, the bowl dug out of the ground by my great-great-grandparents, and planted with every delicious variety of grass and flowers. And there was the lodge, the blue plaits awning that covered the southern quarter of the scoop and kept our things out of the rain. But just behind the scoop, in a place it could not possibly be. Was a waterfall. It was an incredible waterfall. It fell hundreds of feet from the edge of a cliff, a cliff that simply stood there, no mountains on either side, just a cliff that rose sharply from the grass. I felt a sick queasiness in my stomach. I was seeing something I had seen before. It was the picture from what Lorraine had called a cigarette ad. But it was in a place it should not be. In a place it could not be, it was violating the very laws of physics. This was not home. I tore my gaze away from the impossible waterfall and looked around. From the top of the rise, I could see fairly far. What I saw was impossibility piled on impossibility. But what I focused on first 
was the sky. It was a deep red and gold, like the red and gold of my own world. It was also light blue, with fluffy white clouds. And it was green. Stretching over my head was a sky broken into jigsaw puzzle fragments. Here, a patch of andalite sky. There, a lighter blue. And over there, a shocking green torn by ragged bolts of electricity. Clouds drifted through the paler blue segments, and then disappeared when they reached a different segment. Lightning in the green sky disappeared when it reached one of the other patches. I had never known what the sky of Earth looked like, but now I could guess. It was pale blue, with fluffy white clouds. And I had never known the sky of the Yurk world, but now I could guess that, too. It was green and torn by bolts of electricity. What have we done? I wondered. And I remembered the laughter of that vast and strange being I had glimpsed. Hello, Phantomorphs, and thank you for listening to another episode of Audiomorphs, the Animorphs auditory experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Uh, thanks for joining me for another week. I don't have a lot here. I will say a quick shout out to Bear2444, who has given me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you use Apple Podcasts and want to do that, more power to you. I love getting them. Uh, this one's just short and to the point. It's titled Exclamation Mark, just the symbol. And then the review itself, excellent. Thank you, Bear2444. Uh, straight to the point. Love it. Love to see it. Uh, if you'd like to reach me, just in general, I guess, say hi, talk about this podcast, talk about Animorphs, talk about whatever, you can do that at audiomorphcast at gmail.com or audiomorphscast.tumblr.com. Uh, also be sure to check out theapocalypse.com. That's my website where I post all my creative endeavors, such as Into the Radlands and Into the Badlands rewatch podcast I do with my friend Jesse. Okay, that is all I have this week. So, uh, we're almost done with this book. We're, we're getting there. We're in the last third. But I will see you all next week. My name is Daniel, and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight. <laughs>